Okay, welcome to EM Toxcast. Uh, it is another warm Monday in August, and I'm joined at the EM Toxcast studios by studios. my compatriots in journal clubbing. We don't club, we don't go out to clubs, but we do journal club <laughs> all the time. Uh, That's pretty sad. Yeah, it's well, just as fun, isn't it? It is just as fun in a sort of pointy-headed way. <laughs> Uh, I'm here with Ed Ramaska and Ernie Lieber, and we have a very interesting slate of articles that we're reviewing uh, in anticipation of Journal Club, which is next week. Are we going to talk two weeks? It's next two weeks. This week, next week. So, Buku, lots of time for the residents to listen to the podcast, go back into the uh, into the articles, and get all those nuggets we uncovered for them on their own. So, what's our first article? All right, so the first article we have up is the uh, the pediatric DKR article. So the clinical trial of fluid effusion rates for pediatric DKA. It's the Nate Cooperman et al. part of the PCARN DKA fluid study group. Uh, and just recently published, June 2018. So uh, there's been a lot of talk in the FOMED world, the Twitter sphere, as they say. Um, so just as far as background on this, uh, the biggest problem that we see, or the the biggest cause of morbidity, mortality in these uh, fear, you know, the most fear that comes out of this is the the chance of cerebral edema in kids. Yes, and right. it's been you know uh, theorized for a long time. Maybe it's the fluids that do it. Right. Although there's lots of controversy there, um, so they kind of wanted to lay you know this question to rest. I think. Um, you know, what a lot of people think is it's really the severity of the acidosis and the dehydration that seem to be the most important risk factors. Mm. So the clinical, cl- clinical questions were, does the IV infusion rate influence the neurologic outcomes in children? And does the sodium content, so half normal versus normal saline, influence the neurologic outcomes in children with DKA? So this was done out of 13 emergency departments in the U.S., all in urban settings, as we said, part of the PCAR network. Uh, they took patients um, uh, age 0 to 18 with a diagnosis of DKA. They defined that as a glucose greater than 300, uh, pH less than 7.25, or a bicarb less than 15. Uh, there were 1,255 patients that underwent randomization, and they put these patients into four uh, broad categories. Okay. Uh, the people that they left out of the study... So if you had altered mentation for some other reason, whether it be drugs, alcohol, head trauma, okay. if you had DKA treatment initiated prior to consent for the study, uh, children with a GCS less than 11 at the time of initiation of treatment, and pregnant women, um, they kind of they, they left out of the study. Okay. Uh, so they called this uh, kind of a, a two-by-two uh, grouping of patients where there were uh, one group of fast resuscitation and a group of slow resuscitation. Then within the fast resuscitation, you got either half normal saline or normal saline, and then groups in the slow that got half normal or normal. So, so fast or slow, half normal or normal Correct. are your, are your four choices there. Yes. In got the it. fast group, they assumed a 10% uh, deficit. In the slow group, they assumed a 5% deficit. Uh, and then the way they, they, they did it, is that the fast group got a 20, basically a 20 cc per kilo bolus. Um, uh, and then in the slow group, they got a 10 cc per kilo bolus. And then the fast group had half the fluids repleted over 12 hours and the remaining over the next 24 hours. The slow group, 
just had all of her fluids corrected over 48 hours. And that would be either with the half normal or normal saline. So a fast resuscitation group was 36 hours total. uh, And the slow was 48 total with a lower, with half the fluid target, shall we say. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So one is one is uh, fast is um, uh, I guess what we're what I would think of more of an adult approach, if you will. Yes. And slow yeah. was is slow is the approach that you would advise that you were supposed to do after you transferred the child to a pediatric hospital and you got a call from their right. resident endocrinologist. Right. If <laughs> you knew where you were going to be talking to a pediatric endocrinologist, yes. slow was your approach. There you go. Okay. Um, and then just of note, the, the really the fast resuscitation is really kind of just normal resuscitation, it seems, you know, for right. what we do. With, with yeah, we, I think we, um, 10% being, uh, 10% body weight as a target is probably pretty close to what we do uh, if I start thinking of our own adult mm-hmm. DKA algorithm. Certainly the definition is the same, you know, 7, 2, 5, and 15. So, yep, pretty close. All right, so what were the outcomes? Uh, the primary outcome that they were looking at were the number of episodes of a decline in GCS to less than 14 in the first 24 hours. The secondary outcomes they looked at were incidents of clinically apparent brain injury or short-term memory deficit during treatment and their IQ at two and six months after the episode of DKA. Uh, so, uh, so results here. Uh, there were 1,389 distinct episodes of DKA. There were some patients that were enrolled twice because they had more than one episode of DKA, but none more than twice. Mm. Um, there were a total of 48 episodes where there was a GCS of less than 14. Uh, 22 of those episodes required hyperosmolar therapy, so treatment for cerebral edema, mm. uh, and 12 of those episodes uh, resulted in clinically apparent brain injury. What's interesting altogether, there was no statistically significant difference among the four groups uh, in the magnitude of decline or the duration of the GCS uh, when they analyze these. So whether you got them fast, slow, half normal, or normal, no statistically significant differences. Um, so I, that Any one trends come out of that? Um, so one thing that they, they, they noted, <laughs> so which was not statistically significant, uh, was that in the fast resuscitation group, there were less patients who had a decrease in their GCS um, and less patients with a clinically apparent brain injury. So although it didn't reach statistical significance, there was still less of those patients right. in the fast resuscitation group. Well, as my physics professor used to say, aha! <laughs> Is that what he used to say? That's what he used to say. <laughs> Did he say anything else? No, but you were supposed to know what he meant when he said, aha! So to me, that was my aha moment in this paper, where uh, you know the oft-maligned rapid resuscitation, 10, 20 per kilo approach that we use in adults was you know uh, stated as as uh, bad practice when right. it came to pediatric mm-hmm. emergency medicine, and to me to just see that slight edge go to the um, you know fast right. uh, group. Um, also uh, reinforce what has been previously published, you know, uh, in prior studies where it just basically said, you know, this is the cerebral edema is an effect of the disease and it is not a response to the fluid or the resuscitation. It's an effect of the dehydration and the acidosis and all those things. And so resuscitating them faster is probably a better idea than just going slowly. Right. Or at least a no worse idea. Than going slowly. Um, the, none of the thing, none of the things about 
complying with either of these approaches puts your patient at a disadvantage, relatively speaking. I would argue maybe it gives you a slight advantage to use the fast approach. Right. Yeah, I was, read, uh, I was reading one other, uh, you know, something that had to do with this, and they said that tw- those 12 episodes, those 12 patients that had brain injury and cerebral edema were the sicker ones. They were more acidotic. They were more dehydrated. Um, so it, it just it makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 if I was a resident, I would take table one, uh, hit print on my uh, computer, uh, cut the table out and fold it up and put it in my pocket so that I'd be ready to manage a DKA. Because I think this is a nice blueprint for managing DKA. And I will say this, that you cannot be sloppy with fluids when you're resuscitating children, right? You do have to have targets. You have to have rates. You have to do it on a per kilo basis. And I think what we're saying here, strictly speaking, is that the uh, go-slow approach that had been often recommended um, is really, I think, put to rest here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Agreed. You know, I, I've seen protocols where they call for no fluid boluses at all. Right. Yeah. And it's just a slow infusion over, you know, two days, your production. Right. And, and that that's probably not necessary. Yeah. yeah, probably not necessary and probably actually not good. Right. And, and this makes it nicer for, as you said, when you have to call the pediatric hospital to transfer them. Well, you know, there's... Now no- you're not going to get a lecture about, yes. oh, my God, you gave... How many you you gave twenty two cc's more than you should have? Yeah, and, and right. Like, I can remember as a resident, I was in my peds rotation, and then I said, "Why don't we just resuscitate them like we do adults?" And of course, after I, you know, you were I, hung in that twenty pem fellows jumped on top <laughs> and they started punching me. Never say that again. Yeah. You'll probably um, still get a lecture on how much <laughs> phosphorus is in your fluids or potassium <laughs> is in your fluids. Very true. But at least they can't talk to you about the, the amount rate of fluids, of fluids that you're giving. Right, right. Now, having said that, though, do you have to you still have to co- uh, comply with all this. Yes. Um, no real advantage of half normal to normal. No, it doesn't seem. Yeah, maybe a little bit more acid doses. A little bit more hyperchloremic acidosis. There you go. Yeah, in the normal That's clinically saline. significant. Right, but we don't think that's, that's an issue uh, really to be truthful. So... Uh, yeah, gosh. I mean, hats off to, to Nate Cooperman. What a great job. A study I thought I'd never see happen uh, to get folks to actually comply with an approach at DKA. Um, and Ernie, you were telling a story about how this how difficult this study was to, to pull off. The thing was, they did this study, uh, you know, 15 years ago or so, but it was just retrospective. It was multi-center with, with what you know, they thought it was good evidence at the time, but people didn't buy into, you know, when they came out and said it wasn't the fluids, people didn't buy into that part of it. They bought into the part where they said, okay, let's stop giving bicarb to these acidotic patients, but you can give fluids, you know, however you want. It doesn't seem to be related. Um, so it was really th- over that period of time before they could put together this working group and get all of these centers involved uh, to really put together. One of the one other interesting thing about it is, you know, Nate Cooperman, worked alongside his wife, who was a pediatric endocrinologist, uh, to put this together. So wow. That's, yeah. So, mm. so that's really, so they have the perfect there's a, team there's a to dinner do time this conversation study. For you. Yeah. yeah. Really? So, uh, so she was part of this too. Um, and I think we'll give her credit in the Cole Glaziers. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, you know, who else better to study this than, than, than those two? I'll have to ask Nate what that conversation was <laughs> like. Honey, I'm doing a pediatric DK study where I'm giving rapid infusion of saline. Good God, man. What are you thinking? <laughs> But I think she's actually trained in uh, and somehow trained in EM, too. So she, she oh, Okay, good, good. All right, yeah. great. So probably everybody was on the same page, no yeah. doubt. 
All right, great study. I love that study, and that that is a um, um, as you know, I walk around with a bag full of articles uh, for uh, on shift to. Pull out this is one you can call a landmark yeah, study that's that, I, that that's, changes practice. That's going to be in everybody's 50 and 50, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. All right. What is our next study? So the next one we're going to do is which drug do you give to treat acute agitation in the emergency department? It's entitled intramuscular midazolam, olazapine, suprazidone, or haloperidol for treating acute agitation in the emergency department. Um, this was done at Hennepin County. Uh, it was in Annals of Emergency Medicine. It, uh, it came out online in 2018, although it hasn't been published yet, the last time I checked still, in print at least. And it was done by Klein. Um, you may remember Klein and Driver and Minor. We've, we've done a couple studies of them before. Hennepin's yes. doing a, a lot of good work up there. Of course, mm-hmm. yep. And mm-hmm. we've been doing a bunch of their studies recently. But in any case, they wanted to look at um, these four different drugs and two doses of the haloperidol for treating acute agitation. Uh, um, They wanted to initially do it as a um, randomized controlled trial, but they couldn't do it because the FDA wouldn't give them approval because it says in the article, quote, there was insufficient evidence that this population could not provide informed consent. Which, I don't know, seems a little strange to me. If you've ever been in the ER when these patients come in and they're wild and there's, you know, yeah. and, and there's four cops and yeah. a couple of paramedics and everybody's holding them down. And yeah, I think the FDA needs to get out a little bit there on yeah, that, on that really. issue, per se. So, so what they did was they, they, they developed a clinical care protocol for uh, agitation treatment. Right. And they decided they were going to change the drugs every three weeks that they would do. This way they would just have... Um, a prospective observational trial, and it would be consecutive patients, and they really tried to lean on people, don't go outside the protocol, just use it. And the good news is is we run out of drugs every three weeks, so probably worked out just fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. And that's probably why they separated the halidol in the the two things. So the first week was five milligrams of halidol. The second week was 20 milligrams of zaprezidone, which is geodon, for those of you Mm -hmm. who don't remember generic names. The next week was 10 milligrams of olazapine, which is Zyprexa. Zyprexa. Which I have to admit, I don't use all that often myself. No, although we're, I think, start going to start looking at it for cannabinoid hyperemesis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then it was 5 milligrams of midazolam or Versed the next week. And then the final week was 10 milligrams of haloperidol or Haldol. They tried it. And basically, this they gave it to everybody. Unless you were allergic to one of the meds or you were a prisoner or the attending thought, uh, I need to do something else. They, they really pushed for everybody to get into this. They used a validated um, agitation scale that ranged from minus four to plus four, whether you were most sedated to um, most agitated. And they wanted to look at the altered mental status in 15 minutes, which is a sort of a good endpoint for this because the patients come in, they're wild. You're getting all these people together. You're trying to calm them down. You're strapping them down. Trying to stay safe, right? You're trying to stay safe, and you want to get them down as as quickly as possible. Um, So I thought that was a good endpoint to use. Um, They did a sample size calculation. It looks like they have enough patients in their study and everything, so we won't belabor that point. They looked at 3,443 patients. They were screened for eligibility, and they wound up including 700 
little over 700 patients. Um, most of them were men, 72%, and most of them, the agitation etiology was alcohol. So that was like 650 patients or 88%, basically nine out of 10 patients were intoxicated rather than drugs, psychiatric effects, or medical effects, yeah. things like that. An important point, I think. Yeah. And at 15 minutes, they thought midazolam or Versed demonstrated the best efficacy compared with all the other uh, antipsychotics by a significant margin, except when they compared it to olazapine, the Zyprexa. Um, there wasn't a significant difference between those two. Um, adverse events were uncommon. The midazolam required more rescue medication, probably because it's um, short right. short duration of action and short half-life. So you have to keep an eye on those patients. But otherwise, I thought it an interesting study because it's something that we certainly deal with a lot. And as you said, it uh, can be dangerous situations when these patients come in and they're yelling and screaming and s sometimes violent. Right. And it, you've got medics and police and security right. guards all jumping around. Right. Looks like a rodeo. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is those first 15 minutes that are important, too. You know, that's when you really do want to get quick control of them for their safety, for our safety. I agree. Their, their, their AMSS uh, score uh, uh, on table two, I think, really tells the tale of how things went for them. You know, so... Uh, everybody starts in at around a two and then um, gets to a minus one or a zero uh, pretty quickly. Uh, the the um, uh, the two that really sort of lag behind are, of course, the the Haldol at the two doses. Uh, for me, though, I think it's important for anybody who would say like, "Oh, okay, well, Medazlam five IM is going to be my go-to," to realize that you're going to need to go to something else about an hour later. Right and uh, I like this study because this is, uh, for a patient, as we get into these very rushed protocols, for example, stroke protocols or whatnot, where I am doing all of a, a hallway assessment and sending a patient off to get scanned somewhere, I do think that 5IM or Versed would be, or midazolam would be a great choice for, for that patient. Because then I know, you know, they're going to come back and then they're going to um, actually start to, shall we say, uh, lighten up right. in a short period of time. Um, uh, the other thing is that, of course, with all the number, high number of alcohol patients, uh, a benzo is always a great choice. And um, I just feel like uh, if you really have, if you can somewhat differentiate whether you have a drug-induced psychosis, you know, or a patient who is actually uh, psychosis uh, mm -hmm. from an altered mental status with a psychiatric disorder, that makes you want to give them um, an antipsychotic because I feel like they're more organized. There's a difference between s sleepy and still psychotic. <laughs> right. And, you know, sort of like and reorganizing and sort of thinking. organized, able yeah. to respond to healthcare workers and recognize no, their environment. I, I think you're right. I think their study population sort of foretold their result because, again, a little bit, almost yeah. nine out of 10 patients were agitated because of alcoholism or alcohol, acute yeah. alcohol intoxication yeah. rather than being hypoglycemic or just being psychotic right. or doing K2 or PCP or right. something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it sort of makes sense in that regard. The other interesting thing, and, you know, um, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but did you ever order Giadon on somebody acutely 
And it, the nurse is like, yeah. I'm, I'm mixing it up. Yeah, it's some, right. something they point out in this that, that yes. Giadon is a particularly bad choice mm -hmm. because, right, it's it's on the hazardous to handle list. I didn't know that. It's got its teratogenic potential. So if the nurse is pregnant, she's supposed to be in a, exactly. you know, a, a, oh. a an EPA, a PPE well, and go. stuff. Yeah. And, and you have to sit there and shake it vigorously and stuff right. like that. And sometimes, you know, you're sitting there going, where's the geodon? I'm mixing it. <laughs> and they're shaking the bottle. You know, it's like, I should have picked something else. Yeah, yeah. You know, they give them five of That gives you an hour to get the right. geodon. To right. get the geodon mixed. Good point. Good point. Maybe that's what we should do. Start, give them midazolam and start mixing the geodon, please, for uh, later on. Well, for those of us who are the, um, and I, I, we, we call it the B-52, I never use the Benadryl. I just do Haldol-5 and Ativan-2. Uh, uh, you know, this study points out that there is no uh, magic bullet when it comes to sedating patients and making wise choices of combined drugs, you know, like is done in many other cases, whether it's conscious sedation or what have you, is, is the best way, I think, to go. And it just shows that any if you pick one choice, you're just not going to uh, really have a perfect scenario. Yeah, I think that dropping that Benadryl is, is shown here, too. You look at the adverse events. I was kind of surprised there were only two episodes of dystonia, zero episodes of akathisia. Right. And those two episodes of dystonia were with the Haldol 10 dose. But really, but other than that, no one got dystonic for many yeah, years. Yeah, and the Ativan, of course, treats dystonia. So, right. you know, if you're using two of Ativan, you've got that, uh, those few uh, patients with a side effect covered. Um, yeah, I, I would say in our practice that fencyclidine is the number one and uh, uh, situation where we probably have, you know, a. Um, you know, an all points bulletin now for security and trying yeah, to get right. those patients in. And um, I'll give midazolam a try. Like I said, especially when it's like a, a patient who is a little agitated needs to go right to the CAT scanner. That might yeah. be a good choice there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. I, I like it. I think, you know, uh, the, the cool drug now is the ketamine, you know, for the agitated right. patients, yeah. which wasn't part of this. Um, but still, you know, I, you know, for, especially for the alcoholics, the, the benzos just make perfect sense. And that, that's probably is the, the what we see the most, you know. Right? Yeah, I reserve that um, that that ketamine for uh, the patient where you cannot even, you know, like you're having a hard right. time with even with multiple security. Just, uh, you know, the ketamine right through the dungarees. <laughs> I they don't worry. call them it's dungarees anymore, do they? No, no, they don't. <laughs> I, I've often worried about that, just injecting I know, right. Through, right through the genes like that. Right. Just Five years later when they have a, uh, a, a gene particle in their, in their yeah, uh, quadriceps for more. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's probably safer for staff that way. <laughs> Most definitely. Most definitely. All right, Epi, an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is our last article. And, uh, gosh, we've been talking and obsessing about epinephrine in cardiac arrest for a long, yes. long time. Uh, so uh, who has this article? Yeah. yeah, so that's one of the points that's made in you know the background part of this is that it's been used since the 60s, uh, but really it's never been proven uh, that it's going to you know uh, give you better outcomes. It's kind of just one of the things that's come in and out of vogue. And like uh, Ed, you were saying earlier, you add vasopressin to it, take away the vasopressin, epi in high doses, you know, uh, epi in Other adrenergic so, agents we yeah. used to use, like right. phenylephrine. And yeah, and it always comes back to epi. Right, so. right. All right. So this was a randomized trial of epi in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, Perkins et al., what they call the paramedic 2 uh, trial. 
Um, this was out of Warwick in the UK. And Ed, you know I like these acronyms. These I was going to say you didn't, you didn't make any comments about the acronym. Yeah. This, this, yeah, yeah. Could you could could either you name what this paramedic stands for? I, I thought it was difficult. in your article someplace, but uh, no. Yeah, I don't know. No, I can't. Yeah. I'll, I'll say it. So it's pre-hospital right. assessment of, of the role of adrenaline, measuring the effectiveness of drug administration in cardiac arrest. That's how you get paramedic. <laughs> Bravo. And two is because this is a follow-up for, from a previous study. Is <laughs> right. that the idea? Right. Oh, well done. I, that, that probably took them the summer. They had to take a... <laughs> Yes, let's get this study. Take a this month. The title. We need the title. It took three authors just to come up with that. <laughs> the south of London. All right. So who were the patients that they were somewhere. studying? Um, so this was they were adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest uh, receiving ACLS by trial-trained paramedics. It was over a three-year period, 2014 to 2017. Uh, it's important to note that patients that responded to just initial CPR or an initial defibrillation were not included in this study. Uh, so overall, 10,623 patients were screened, 8,014 patients were enrolled. The majority of those exclusions were because EPI had either been given before trial paramedics arrived or because the patients had ROSC before randomization. Uh, the mean age was 69, 65% were male, about 20% of patients had an initial shockable rhythm, 50% were witnessed by a bystander, and just under 60% had bystander CPR prior to arrival EMS, which I thought was pretty high, too. Yeah, pretty high. Yeah, I think it's uh, just in my own anecdotal um, you know, mind, I think that that's pretty high. Yeah. Uh, so the intervention was one milligram of epinephrine pushed every three to five minutes, which is kind of your standard ACLS dose. Sure. Mm -hmm. The control was just IV normal saline. The primary outcome they looked at was 30-day survival, so survival at 30 days after your cardiac arrest. Um, they had a few different secondary uh, outcomes that they were looking at. Probably the most important one that they wanted to point out, I think, was survival to hospital discharge with a favorable neurologic outcome. Um, so I think they were, def and they were defining that by using a modified ranking state ranking scale, mm -hmm. uh, four and uh, four and below, or three and below, actually. Um, the other, other secondaries were survival until hospital admission, length of stay in the ICU, length of stay in the hospital, uh, and then survival at three months. Mm -hmm. uh, so the patients that were not included, uh, pregnant patients, age less than 16, cardiac arrest from anaphylaxis or asthma, uh, administration of epi before arrival of the trial paramedic, like we stated, and then traumatic cardiac arrest also not included. Okay. Uh, so what were your results? At 30 days, uh, 130 patients, so it was 3.2% in the epinephrine group, and 94 patients, that's 2.4% in placebo group, placebo group, were alive. Um, so 3.2% in the epi group, 2.4% in the placebo group. Hmm. Um, uh, so that and they, they, they calculate a number needed to treat of 112 for those groups. So if you treat 112 patients with epi, you're going to get one more survival. Um, there was no significant difference in discharge with a favorable neurologic outcome. That was 2.2% versus 1.9%. Um, in the epinephrine group, they broke, just to break down a little bit more, in the epinephrine group, there were 39 patients with a ranking scale of four or five in the placebo, placebo group, 16 patients uh, in the four to five range. Um, so the numbers for positive outcomes are 74 in the placebo group and 87 in the epi group. So 13 more patients, thir there are 13 more good quality survivors 
but that came at a price of 23 severely neurologically impaired patients. Right. Um, I saw it broken down just one more way, too, which kind of makes more sense. So for every 1,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, the use of epi will result in 246 cases of ROSC, 158 admissions to the hospital, eight survivors at 30 days. Of those eight survivors, three have a good neurologic outcome and five have a bad neurologic outcome. Right. So those are so those are pretty much the results. The author's conclusion, he says, in adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the use of epi resulted in a significantly higher rate of 30-day survival than the use of placebo, but there was no significant difference between uh, the rate of favorable neurologic outcomes because more survivors had poor neurologic outcomes. Yeah, so... I, yeah, I, I didn't find that... Re- Result that's surprising, actually, as, no, as we started right. talking about. It's like, you know, yeah. when you've been doing this for a while, you realize that you can resuscitate hearts. But then when you follow them up in the ICU the next couple of days, you realize that's all you resuscitated. Yeah, and you do have, a, a, you do a, have a feeling, you know, it's like it's been going on for a while, and that fifth milligram of epi gets rosk, mm-hmm. and you're like, wow, this is, this is yeah. not going to be great. Although I do have a little bit of a quarrel with this concept of uh, good neurologic outcome, and I um, really feel that you know uh, if if we have more folks surviving, uh, if you look at it from the standpoint of uh, of uh, the loved one's standpoint, uh, I think mm-hmm. that patients would say like, yes, I'd I'd like my loved one to survive, and we'll see what the outcome is, and yeah. you know go go from there. So I. Uh, it I, also depends yeah. on when they study that, though. You know, because if you ask somebody, like if you just take people walking down the street, functioning normally, yes. would you want to survive a cardiac arrest and be bed bound and paralyzed, or would you rather be yeah. dead? Right, right, right. Right. They would be yeah. like, "No, nah, I don't want to live like that." But yeah. then, on the other hand, you're right. Then, if you look at the family or the patient surviving, sure. it's like, "Well, yeah, I can't do everything, but I am alive." Yeah. Right, so. Right. It, it, it depends on when you approach the patient and ask yeah. them, like, how do you make that decision? I feel like, yeah, I feel like if you read this article and get discouraged by Epi, I think you're taking the wrong, the wrong, uh, making the wrong conclusion. In other words, right. we just haven't figured it all out yet, right? We haven't figured out what the right dose of Epi is. We haven't figured out how to protect the brain from Epi. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the sort of that chain of survival, you know, Epi is a is a link in it. Like they said, it's not as big a link as CPR and defibrillation. In fact, it's definitely not as big as either of those, but it's still a link in it. And right. we, we, we have to go, I think, one step further and find a way to protect the brain from the doses of epi you need to bring the heart back. Or as you right. said previously, I mean, everything's a poison. It just depends on the dose. Right. Yes. So yeah. maybe there is a point where you, we can, you know, if it takes this much epi to get somebody back, it may not be worth it because we're not really going to get their brain back. Right. Like, we're just right. going to get a heart-lung prep back. Right. The, 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 like we do with atropine, right? We say at two milligrams, that's, that's vagolytic. We know five milligrams of atropine is not going to make much of a difference. Um, and five would, would result in an atropinized anticholinergic patient, right? So we don't go that far. Right. Uh, maybe we need to start looking at that at, at, with, with epi as well. Maybe, uh, and I did not dive into uh, the supplements here, but you wonder whether there's a little detail in there somewhere where, you know, uh, a lower dose that, that is successful uh, 
is where you know we can draw the line. A couple of milligrams if you get some response. If you're yeah. not getting response, you're up to ten milligrams. Then, um, but if it's that always, tenth works, then you you may not have a very viable yeah. uh, neurologic situation. But it's always hard to when you're in the midst of that. Like oh, of course, I, like I said, yeah. I just had a patient recently who we who probably had a PE we were resuscitating and. You know, you're giving them epi, and you could see the epi wearing off, and you give them another dose, and you get them back, and then you put them on the drip. It's like, I, I don't maybe that wasn't a good idea, you know, right. because, yeah. you know, maybe after you're right, after you get to so many milligrams, it's like, if we're not going to save them after five milligrams or whatever the number is. Right. Um, it's a burden we have calling these codes, you know. Yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah, no, there, there are people out there who won't dose their epi like this, you know, one milligram every three to five. I hear people, you know, they'll put it in a drip and right. run it in, you know, so so is it a lower dose that's better? And then people were trying to guide their epi by putting in an A-line and looking at the diastolic pressure, right, which is when you're going to perfuse your coronaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, maybe that's the, the end point that we need to look at. How much epi, enough epi to perfuse your heart, but, you know, maybe a milligram is too much. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think the question is still open as to what's the right dose, the right timing. Um, we've definitely made a lot of changes in CPR in the last 20 years. I mean, uh, 20 years ago, if you could do, um, CPR, um, resuscitated patient, and if you needed a couple of minutes to intubate and, you know, you would get, nobody would, everybody would just stop doing compressions. Right, right. (laughs) Now, you know, we know the wrongness of that and, you know, the compressions rule the day and early defib rules the day. They did point out a nice, um, so if the number needed to treat for epi is 1 in 112, they point out the number needed to treat for recognition of cardiac arrest was 1 in 11. Mm-hmm. CPR performed by a bystander, the number needed to treat is 15. And early defib, the number needed to treat is 5. So that does give us a sense of the um, importance of all those three and the small, maybe negligible contribution that Epi makes to the overall survival. But at this point, that's yeah. what we've got. Yeah, just getting more people to do CPR. Uh, but you know, maybe more bang for your buck, and uh, yeah. you know, society-wise. Well, that yeah. sort of also points up one of the problems with these is this is such a mixed ideology. I mean, somebody yeah. with ischemic cardiac disease who's going to go into VFib is different than somebody who's got a PE or right. septic right. or whatever, and they're coding from that, and it's probably not a, a rhythm that's going to respond to electricity. So, right, you know, it, it, it's really. A little unfair to equate those two. Yeah. I mean, you know, VFib, we know if we buzz you and get you out of it really quickly, um, yeah, I think you'll we're, have a better survival. We're getting better at that. I think the concept of, I think it was our last journal club, we looked at the concept of narrowing uh, or, or splitting PEA into narrow complex and mm-hmm. wide complex PEA and understanding where one might be, um, you know, uh, really an issue of perfusion and pressure uh, as opposed to uh, a, contru- a true just electrical activity with no right. pulse. So and that was one of the things with this study too is that people weren't, the, the patients weren't getting epi until like 21 or 22 minutes out from their event, which is they think really past the time where epi is helpful. When you're 20 minutes out, it's what they you know, they call that metabolic phase. So it's acidosis and right, things like yeah. that. In the beginning, the electrical phase, when it first happens, that's when you respond to defibrillation. And then kind of between those two is where they think epi might be beneficial. Get a little bit more blood flow back to the heart yeah. so you can defibrillate somebody. Right. Um, so, so, you know, so the timing of epi in this study, too, you know, came into question. It did a seem bit. a little long yeah. in this study yeah. from what 
yeah. my experience is. Yeah, that's how do you sure. get? Yeah, how do you get first epi with you know within that fifteen minute window? I think right, tough. epi in the field versus by the time yeah. they come to us, you know, yeah, probably um, the uh, the horses out of the barn. Well, those are great studies, and I think those are I think those three are, are going to be um, you know uh, uh, part of the core content without without very much time going by. So uh, thanks for uh, doing this journal club uh, with with me, and um, look forward to seeing what everybody discusses at the journal club. And we will talk to you next time. All right, bye. See ya.